Okay, good morning, you all. I just thought I'd start with a great spiritual hymn by Prince, or the artist formerly known as Prince. Um, what does it go by now? Who knows? Um, well, welcome again to this class, which we're calling The End of the World. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about the Lamb and the Empire, which is kind of a, a first century Marvel movie. This is actually a really interesting way of thinking about the apocalypse of John or the book of Revelation. Consider it to be a kind of first century Marvel movie, right? Like the Avengers. Is that Marvel? Um, who's the, what's the other comic? It's Marvel and DC. Okay. Well, anyways, so consider it to be like either a Marvel or a DC kind of comic from the first century. And so it's using all kinds of imagery that is fantastical. And um, that might be one helpful way of thinking about the book. The other um, point that I want to make is, and I started with this song just a moment ago as you were walking in, is to put this, this song in front of you, Seven, by Prince. And uh, this is actually um, deeply impacted by the Apocalypse of John, by the book of Revelation. But... I'm not showing the music video. It's a little edgy. Um, (laughs) Notice the parental advisory thing on the front there. But I did just want to play it for you and let you kind of hear it again and meditate on the verses. This is a good spiritual practice for us. Where have you heard before from church that meditating on prints is a good spiritual practice? (laughs) But we're going to listen to it. And I just want you to hear it and let it kind of roll over you, and then we'll draw out some connections as we move forward into the Apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation. So y'all should have a handout. If you don't, there are more in the back. Distance, and the armies marching feet. 
Okay. Wasn't that spiritually enriching? Um, what did you hear, and what did you hear that maybe connects to the apocalypse of John? Just shout it out. Yeah, there were some lampstands. Uh, that's right. Um, there, were, there were seven lampstands. So there's a connection of seven. Was someone over here? Seven churches, correct. There were seven churches. Uh-huh. Any other thematic connections? Yeah, so, so Aaron said the image of an army that's mysterious marching against some chosen group. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good connection to Revelation. What else? What do, all space and time. So there's a cosmic vision here. This just isn't in like the state of you know, Kentucky. This is a cosmic vision. And love, there's, here's another connection, love kind of triumphs. Love conquers all. There are two characters, at least, apart from the seven, who are the evil ones in this song. But there are these two characters, almost like a bride and a bridegroom. There are these, these two that are in love, and the love that is shared between them will conquer all. Well, that sounds a lot like Revelation, or it will, increasingly, as we get through it. Any final words about this song? We have compassion. We have peace. Today we're going to talk about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. We have um, sand of the sea. And we're going to talk about, you know, eventually a beast that comes up out of the sea. We have blasphemy. We see that in book of revelation as well and the seven that fall we see the destruction of the evil forces okay well i hope that that was uplifting for you um we could just end now right one other way of thinking about the book of revelation is as a jewish opera on persecuted church i don't know how many of you have been to an opera before um but you could think of this book this is how one scholar has put it as a jewish opera Again, it's using fantastical imagery. And what I'm trying to do here is underscore the importance of the genre of apocalypse. Right? When you go to the opera, it's quite different than everyday life. And it's also not. Right? It's describing relational tensions and good and evil and, you know, why did the good die young? And it's, it's talking about all sorts of human experiences, but it's using very colorful makeup and, and icon, iconography and imagery and such. And that is what uh, this book is doing as well. And so with that said, um, let's, let's uh, talk about chapter 4 and 5 again, just by way of review. So you might remember that last week in chapter 4, which I want to read again here in just a moment, we see Jewish imagery and we see empire Roman imagery. And so... John is coming along and he's using these two images, kind of pivoting between the two to make a point about the one who truly sits on the throne and that it ain't Caesar, okay? So let's read chapter 4. 
I'll just go through it briefly, and then I want to read chapter 5 later again. It's just important that we actually interface with the narrative itself. So here is what it says, and I've included it, by the way, on your handout. After this I looked, this is chapter 4, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, right? So John has, has now, you know, left Kansas. He is, he's no longer in Kansas, he's in a different place. He has uh, gone up into the sky, he's in the, the heavenly throne room. And he sees a throne, and one who is seated on the throne. And it says, And he who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are Four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Okay, so remember we talked about how you come to the text with certain presuppositions um, that will sort of determine how you read this. So if this is all about the future, if it's all about the future, then you're going to want to interpret it kind of literally as, you know, um, a first living creature like a lion, another like an ox. You're going to want to interpret all the eyes as being literally just a bunch of eyes on a creature. You're going to want to have a one-to-one kind of correspondence between the text and and the reality that will take place at some point in the future. But if you're interpreting this in the first century with John and the original audience as having to do with their time first, by the way, that's not to say that it doesn't have to do with any other time, but if that's the primary um, interpretive framework, then you're going to start looking for those connections. And in fact, the connections exist. So you might remember that last week we talked a little bit about Daniel 7, the kind of MLK, I have a dream speech of um, the Old Testament, right? And um, here's what it says. Four beasts. Daniel saw a dream and visions. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. It's quoting Prince, the sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, 
a second one like a bear, another one like a leopard, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. There's all kinds of heads, there's all kinds of eyes, different things going on. There are horns and more, okay? So it's not an exact sort of... He doesn't take the exact image from Daniel 7, but it's definitely like within that, um, that arena of meaning, of images and such. But then also, remember we quoted... Ezekiel 1, we pointed you to that. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And then it goes on to describe their appearance, their legs and their burnished bronze feet and their faces and all sorts of other things. Again, very similar to what's going on here in Revelation. So it's pulling from Jewish apocalyptic images that were stock metaphors. And that's what John is doing here in the book of Revelation. And we also, um, we also underlined that part of what's going on here within that Jewish meaning is that... Um, all of creation is shown as being oriented around its proper end, right? So you have, you have the four creatures. Um, they are oriented around the one who is on the throne. So all of creation is properly aligned around the creator and the source of creation itself. And together, you know, with others, they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, And the question coming from chapter 4 is, well, who is the one on the throne? It's pulling here from Jewish imagery. And in a moment, we're going to talk again about how it's pulling from Roman, Roman imagery. But the underlying question is, who is the one that is on the throne? Because remember, those to whom John is writing are increasingly experiencing difficulty from the Roman Empire and from the emperor who has a throne. So is that the one who's on the throne and whose peace will endure forever, or is there another one? These are some of the questions that are floating around. And so, again, let me just underscore that what John is trying to do in an apocalypse, the Greek word apocalypse just means something different than the English word apocalypse. It means a revealing. John's not trying to confuse us. I just can't say this enough. Because the book is so often, it's so often um, sort of put forward as like a confusing book. And it, and it certainly can be in some ways because we're not the original audience. But he has a vision that all will be well according to God's providential plans. God is showing us something here, not hiding something. And John is the vehicle of this revelation. And just by way of reminder, where are we within the book in terms of the macro view I want you to remember these categories, which is why I'm reinforcing them so much. In terms of the macro view, the book can be understood with Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. This is referred to as the threefold office of Jesus. You hear about it all the time in church history, in our own hymns, and elsewhere. And that first section of the book, the first three chapters, we have Jesus the revealer, revealing through John um, what's going on behind reality, truly as reality. We have chapters 4 through 11. We have the Lamb, right? The one who is the true priest. The priest who is victim, actually, for his creation. 
And so this is where we are presently. And today we're going to cover chapters 4 and 5 again and drill down deeper than we did last week. And then finally, chapters 12 through 22, we have the messianic warrior king. If you can just keep this in your mind, you can, you can understand how this truly is, as John says in chapter 1, verse 1, a revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole book is a revelation of Jesus Christ and his threefold ministry. In terms of the micro view, we are seeking to be grounded in first century realities, cultural realities first. And so in chapter 4, we're talking about Hebrew worship as we've just done with Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7. We're talking about four living creatures. We're talking about the Roman imperial court. And I'm going to say a lot about Rome today. Revelation chapter 5, we start grounding some of what the text says in the emperor cult. And when we do that, it makes so much sense of the chapter. And then as we get into chapter 6 and 7, next no, the following week, because next week is the annual parish meeting, so show up in this room. Ne- the week following, we're going to talk about the Pax Romana and the Roman Empire. And just kind of bring those two cultural realities. The reality of the text, as John wrote it, and the reality of the Roman Empire and the Pax Romana. And we're going to like slap them together like a peanut butter sandwich, right? It'll make a lot of sense. It'll be very helpful. So the goal, keep in mind, the goal of the entire book is to call the first hearers, those um, seven churches and anyone else in that time, and Christians of all time, to call them more deeply into worship, to worship on earth as it is in heaven. So that's an important distinction because this is not just a book that is about heaven. It's about the church worshiping in the midst of idolatry and difficulty and persecution and the potential for assimilating fully to culture. It's about the church moving forward faithfully in worship on earth and seeking for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Dylan was right when he said, you got to serve somebody. And the early Christians were wondering, is that somebody truly this Roman or this Jewish carpenter that was killed on a tree? Or is it this guy that looks pretty powerful and with whom like my paycheck is tied up in terms of the agora, the marketplace, businesses, the culture? So, it is a vision of worship that becomes a call to worship. Eugene Peterson has a great quote where he says, Worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. If there is no center, there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness, epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustained purpose. Right? So the early church, they are within the empire at risk of just assimilating fully to the culture around them. And John is seeking to draw them into faithfulness to the one who truly is the emperor of the cosmos. This is a cosmic vision, Jesus Christ himself. Without this vision, there would be no Handel's Messiah. And we'll talk again a little bit more about that as we did last week, but with more definition. But first, let's talk about Roman history. So 
the question is, in chapter 4, where does the image of the 24 elders come from? We talked about this some last week, but I want to drill down into it a little bit more. They are not found in Jewish literature, these 24 elders in chapter 4. So the term elder comes from the Greek word presbyteroi, not a Jewish term, a Greek term. It gets picked up in the New Testament. And this is the word that's used for elders. It's borrowed from the Greek culture, as is the image of the 24 elders itself. So the question is, where could it have come from? Well, if you know your Roman history, which I am certainly not an expert on Roman history. I had to study up on this. You will know that there were a lot of Roman emperors. And you can see sort of a timeline here. Really, um, the first sort of line there of emperors will be the ones who are relevant for us. But it all started with Julius Caesar. And you might remember that he went to war with the Senate. And he basically declared himself the first emperor of Rome. And um, that was a, a big kind of sea change within the empire. And then we had Octavian Augustus, who was um, his nephew, although he will constantly refer to himself as Julius' son. But he defeated his rivals and became emperor. He was called Augustus. He saved Rome. He quelled the Roman civil war, and he brought peace to the empire. I mean, you're going to be pretty grateful for anyone who does that, right? He was also a very shrewd politician, and he played off of his popularity to develop what we call the emperor cult. We talked some about this last week. The emperor cult was, well, a direct challenge to the Jewish tradition, which there was only one God. The Jews had a creed. It was the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That was the maker of heaven and earth, that God, Adonai, Yahweh. But here we have the emperor cult develop. At his inauguration, he said, I saw my father ascend to the right hand of God. And so if your father ascends to the place of the gods, that makes you a son of God. And so he just ran with this. The emperor became the bringer of peace. The Pax Romana itself was developed. He was the one who would save the world, the emperor, the one to whom all knees should bow. In fact, there is a saying in Rome printed on Roman coins that there is only one name under heaven and earth whereby men can be saved, the name of Caesar. Does that sound familiar? Let me turn to the book of Acts, if I can get there. Here's what Acts 4.12 says. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So right there you see a huge conflict for the early church. And it's, it's going to come to heads. And in fact, it is beginning to do that. So salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. So for Augustus, what this meant is that 
the emperor cult, a whole new economy began to develop around the empire. And so cities were built, new stadiums were built, temples were built, new agoras or marketplaces were built to which the emperor was seen as a god and kind of a steward of the place. And so we have records, for instance, of elders of Ephesus, archaeological records of the elders in Ephesus bringing golden crowns to Augustus Augustus, and laying them down at his feet. And as far as we know, they were the first church that did this. But by the time we get later to Domitian, like every city would do this at the inauguration and in other um, kind of temple worship services. They would bring all their golden crowns and they would lay them at the feet of the emperor. Pretty interesting. And so this became standard practice. Now let's fast forward a bit. We're moving down to Vespasian, skipping over Nero, that that rascal. Vespasian became emperor in 68. And his inauguration, um, in his inauguration, uh, he was referred to... um, and, you know, he's the guy who made this happen. It's not like this was someone else's genius idea. He was referred to as our savior and benefactor, the only worthy emperor of Rome, Vespasian. Okay, so um, pretty big head, not as big as Domitian's. We'll get there. But during all of this time, the emperor Vespasian still remained a man. He was a kind of quasi-deified man. He wasn't fully a god yet. He was still a human being. So he tried to make Vespasian Rome more like a democracy. And uh, his son Titus also did the same. So we had some years of uh, kind of governmental policy where they were trying to strengthen um, sort of a collaborative spirit within the government and a, a truly kind of democratic spirit. But then Domitian comes along. Domitian is Vespasius's son, Titus's brother. So the first thing Domitian does is that he actually deifies his brother, Titus, which Titus would have hated. He would have hated because that then has implications for the um, centralizing of power or the de- the, the decentralizing of, of power that Titus had been in favor of. And so um, he moved the center of the government to the imperial court. Uh, The Senate was basically done away with, and it became openly obsolete. I mean, it still sort of existed, but Domitian completely sidelined them. And this had all sorts of implications. They had no legislative function anymore. So Domitian, along with his 24 elders, basically ran the show. Like, if you wanted anything in Rome... It's Domitian and his 24 elders. So he was seeking to get back to the glory days, Rome under Augustus. And he, as well as emperors do, started massive construction projects and renewed the emperor cult with vigor. And this time, the emperor was not just a son of a god, but God himself living in Rome. God himself living in Rome. Dominus et Deus. God himself in power. So that was Domitian's uh, Domitian's reign. 
Last week, I showed you this statue here, um, just on the left, and I talked about how there was, um, as a tribute to Domitian, a temple that was built in Ephesus that had 24 pillars, all of which were carved into the image of a god from the Roman pantheon. And um, speaking of the hubris of Domitian, who do you think they were holding up? Domitian himself. So we have that statue there, which is the biggest statue that has ever been found of a Roman emperor. And the remains are here. Um, You can kind of see in this image on the right, like people standing next to it. It was huge. And so um, his hand right there would probably be maybe um, 40% larger than a person, I think, something like that. But He was massive, and in his hand was held a scroll. All of this imagery is going to be very important for what we see here in just a moment. He was holding a scroll. And so in doing the Senate, remember he replaced the Senate with his imperial court of 24 elders. They represented the signs of the zodiac multiplied two times over. So there's like many layers here of other gods, other kind of religious imagery. And they would advise him sort of as counselors, but in practice, as I mentioned last week, they were basically his choir. They were his choir. So he had a choir of 24 elders, you know, who were like senators, basically, who would go around and accompany him and sing his praises. And also in his temple in Ephesus, we see... Um, uh, we see it was held up by 24 pillars, which had kind of this double entendre of the gods and his elders. So, notice his hand, as I mentioned already, is empty. There was a scroll in that hand, and we will hear more about that scroll specifically. But first, last week I mentioned that Domitian reinvented the Olympics. And let me say just a little bit more about this. The Olympics already existed. He just thought they weren't awesome enough. So it would be like replacing the NFL with the CFL or something, you know? But it actually was better, you know? And so he reinvents the Olympics, calling them humbly the Domitian Games. And they would start by having his 24 elders go around, as I mentioned last week, singing praises to him. And one of the things they would say is, Great are you, Lord and God, worthy to receive honor and power and glory. Worthy are you, Lord of the earth, to receive the kingdom. Lord of Lord, highest of the high. Lord of the earth, God of all things. Lord God and Savior of Rome. So these, these, these elders were wearing white robes. They were each wearing crowns, as they do. And they were paying obeisance to the emperor. There's another statue here of Caesar, of Domitian. And Ethelbert Stauffer, who is a church historian, says this about him. He says, Domitian was the first emperor to recognize that behind the Christian movement, there stood an enigmatic figure who threatened the glory of the emperor. I'm just a boy from Alabama, y'all. So, so there stood an enigmatic figure who threatened the glory of the emperor. So notice this statue. 
We have in his hand a scroll. This is what the other statue that would have been on top of the temple in Ephesus would have looked like, but it's much smaller. What is in his other hand? Looks like a little ball, doesn't it? Is it a bocce ball? It's the world. He's got the whole world in his hands. Where do you think that came from? So here is Domitian who holds power and authority to reign in the one hand. And in the other hand, he's got human history. He's got the whole world in his hands. But part of the point of chapters 4 and 5 is that the emperor is not who he thinks he is. History and power sounds like a lion, but it looks like a sacrificial lamb. So, let's read chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. Wait, a scroll? Didn't we just see a scroll? Who was seated on the throne. Or, I'm sorry. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Is it Caesar? They might have asked. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth. They're making a point. Like nobody was able to open the scroll. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Does anyone have the whole world in their hands? Is anybody in control? Will the true God of the cosmos please stand up? And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Okay, let me just stop there. So I mentioned earlier, who is the one seated on the throne is the question that they would have been asking. And then we see this very strange image of a lamb with many eyes and many horns, seven to be exact, and he's bloody. What is going on here? Well, there's a lot that could be said, but let me just go straight to the point. In terms of apocalyptic imagery... And these stock metaphors, horns would have conveyed strength, right? Think of horns hitting each other. You ever seen a, like a Rocky Mountain, what are those called, goats or whatever, where they bash each other's horns? It's crazy. Those horns are very strong. The seven eyes, wisdom, they see. They see reality. There's not just two of them, there's seven They see more effectively than two. These are stock apocalyptic metaphors. But what about the seven spirits? This is a little more tricky, but it comes from a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Let me read this. 
chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the, listen to this, spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Okay, so there we have right there seven spirits. And at least many commentators think that those in the first century who were hearing this, especially with a Jewish background, they would have made these kinds of connections to Isaiah chapter 11 as soon as the root of David is mentioned, as it is in chapter 5, verse 5, when it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So these are all kind of linked together within the Jewish imagination. So let's read on. Verse 7 of chapter 5, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, Not the song the 24 elders of Rome sing to Domitian. They sing, worthy are you to take the scroll. That scroll? For that world? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the way Handel's Messiah ends at the end of it (laughs) with the final chorus. It is this right here. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures from earlier said, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So I mentioned last week that this is like imperial playground trash talk saying, you think you got an emperor, we got the emperor of the cosmos, and his name is Jesus, and he's got the whole world in his hands. So, I'm just going to skip forward here a bit, but Richard Bauckham here, this is the bottom quote, says, we recognize the contrast between what he hears in chapter 5, verse 5, and what he sees, chapter 5, verse 6. He hears The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. The two messianic titles, he says, evoke a strong militaristic and nationalistic image of the Messiah of David as conqueror of the nations, destroying the enemies of God's people. But this image is reinterpreted by what John sees, right? So he's heard, but now what he sees is not the lion, but the lamb whose sacrificial death has redeemed people from all nations. They don't 
pay obeisance to the emperor, throwing their crowns down at his feet because he's conquered them. Well, they do, but it's because he's conquered them with his majestic love, not military force. So by juxtaposing these two contrasting images, Bauckham writes, John has forged a new symbol of conquest by sacrificial death. So you see what he's doing here? I'm going to skip that. Well, let me, just, let me just make these last three points. Richard Bauckham says, People worship Jesus immediately because of this. Worship of Jesus as God was not a kind of later interpolation or development, but this was something that was present from the earliest days. He writes, From the earliest post-Easter Christology that we can trace, our vision of Jesus, Jesus' exaltation was understood as his sharing the divine throne in heaven and thus participating participating in the divine rule of the cosmos. So, there's a lot of awesomeness going on here. Do you see how he's pulling from these different kind of cultural realities? And when you understand those cultural realities on the ground, both from Jewish apocalyptic imagery and from the Senate and the elders and temples, I mean, they would have been familiar with these sorts of things from the marketplace and more, When you hear this in the context of that world, those are the natural associations you just would have made. Okay, so our time is basically up, but let me just stop and ask, are there any questions? No pressure. (laughs) I didn't really tee that up very well. So next week, we will get into chapter 6. That's where we're going to start. And we're going to talk about warfare and bowmen. No, two weeks from now. Two weeks from now. Warfare, bowmen, Persian battle tactics, the riders of the apocalypse, and the seven seals. It's going to be awesome. Two weeks from now. Okay, so next week is the annual parish meeting. Remember, there is no 9 o'clock or 11.15 service, those two are collapsed into a 10 o'clock service. And then we're in here um, after the youth service for the annual parish meeting. Good to see you. Thanks for coming.